0: Welcome back to Talk Evidence and Happy New Year. It's a little bit odd since many people may not be feeling particularly um, happy at the moment. In the UK we're facing lots of tougher restrictions in life and work and many of our key worker listeners in healthcare are probably having a very rough time and our thoughts are with all of you and people who are affected by covid And amidst the escalating cases and admissions and deaths, um, our great plans to bring you less corona content and more from the rest of healthcare have been slightly (laughs) put on hold.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's just going to be corona from now on. It is.
0: Um, And we've been thinking about how we can best help. Um, Can we bring... um, some interest um, and some context away from, from stats that we hear a lot in the media around admissions and death counts a sense of how the science and evidence is shifting and how it's being used and to focus on the evidence that seems most practically useful to our listeners well this is what Duncan and I have come up with this week so I'm Helen MacDonald UK research editor at the BMJ resting GP and still mostly on maternity leave um, and have a new role of uh, homeschooler as well. Um, as always, we're joined by Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor at the BMJ. How are you, Duncan?
1: I'm all right. I'm uh, taking a break from doom scrolling to uh, <laughs> to join in this. And there's uh, there's so much to talk about at the moment. But I suppose, uh, yeah, we're focusing on transmission this week, which has been taking up so much of my attention.
0: Good. And this week, we are also joined by uh, Professor Alison Pollock. Um, welcome, Alison. Hello.
2: Lovely to join you, Helen.
0: Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Tell, tell us um, what you did in your job before COVID and, and what you're doing now, how you've become entangled in COVID?
2: Well, I trained in medicine and uh, public health. So I'm a clinical professor in public health, and I work at Newcastle University and I've always done the wonderful thing about public health is you do so many different and varied things but of course I didn't expect to see a pandemic towards the end of my career so I've been very involved in doing work on Covid in the last year trying to understand the evidence and the knowns and the unknowns.
0: This week, we're going to talk about transmission, as Duncan said. Um, what do we know? Um, and we're going to focus a little bit on these point of care lateral flow tests, which were touted as a way to open up society, perhaps as a stopgap until vaccines were working. And we know that the government um, in the UK planned to invest huge amounts of money into that strategy. Um, and despite the lockdown, there are still active plans underway to roll out testing using um, tests such as Innova into asymptomatic healthcare workers and perhaps into schools in the near future. In fact, I have, due to my healthcare worker husband, a pot of these Innova tests mm-hmm. in my on my hall table currently. <laughs> um, and the government and PHE have issued some advice. It came out in mid-December, um, I guess kind of urging um primary care doctors to consider testing amongst their staff um but how well do they really work and are they good policy um what should you know if you're considering using them um who better to turn to to put these questions to than john deeks who is our kind of resident expert in all things diagnostic it seems now he's um been undertaking these um, live systematic reviews, living systematic reviews for Cochrane um, on diagnostic tests. And he joined me earlier this week uh, to uh, tell me about them. John, hi and welcome back uh, to Talk Evidence. We haven't spoken for a few months, um, but I'm sure you've been very busy. I wanted to get you back to tell us a bit about point of care testing, particularly lateral flow tests, and particularly drilling down even further, this Innova test, which um, the UK government um, are advocating for, Particularly for use in primary care, which will interest many of our listeners, tell us a bit about it, if you if you would, about um, when it should be used, how it
3: should be used. So lateral flow tests are very simple tests; they don't require a laboratory. Um, They can be done very quickly. They take thirty minutes at most to do them. So they're a test which are uh, accessible to more people than the PCR. They're cheaper than the PCR, and they're meant to detect virus in the same way as a PCR. So they're suited for testing um, in, particularly in low and middle income countries has been an excellent setting for using them where there are no PCR kits available, no laboratories which can do that. But here in the UK, we've picked them up as a way in which we can introduce testing for mass populations, such as in the Liverpool city.
0: So this is about screening, mass screening of particular populations using these tests.
3: Well, that's interesting because the manufacturers of these tests have developed them and tested them in people who have symptoms, Mm -hmm. but we are taking them uh, in the UK and and some other countries are doing the same uh, as a way of testing asymptomatic people. So yes, we're screening people. They were hailed as a way of opening up activities to actually say we can use these tests to be sure you haven't got COVID. Um, and so they could be used in workplaces, in sports events, at concerts and so on like that. And that, that use of these tests is where the problems really start.
0: And so what does that mean in terms of um, the traditional diagnostic accuracy measures? What are the characteristics that we want this test to have if we want to use it in a freeing up way to reassure people that they don't have COVID and they're safe to be where they are?
3: So the key key thing we want to know is that when you get a negative test, it's ruled out the chance that you've got COVID. If we're using it up to using it to open things up to allow people to think that they're safe and are, are, are not infected or, or, or potentially infectious, uh, we want to make sure the, the statistical value is the negative predictive value. But basically, we're saying we don't want the test to give us false negative results. We don't want to miss cases of COVID.
0: Okay. So turning to the evidence, because we love evidence on Talk Evidence. um, What do we actually know about how well those tests either perform or perform in those particular settings? Because when you go through the PHE information online, if I was a GP trying to decide, should I start testing my staff? It sort of sounds reassuring, but it feels quite thin. The only the only thing I really see mention of is this Porton Down study. So perhaps you could start with that, John, and tell us what was that and what did it really tell us?
3: So there's a, a link in all of the documentation to a preliminary report from from uh, these studies done by Porton and Down and the University of Oxford. Um, that came out at the beginning of November and we're still waiting to see the final report. So that document describes a whole series of studies uh, some of which were done on um, samples, uh, which were um, spike samples and so on in laboratories, all the way through to some field studies. So the field studies are the ones we're most interested in, where the test has been used uh, in the settings in which it may be used. Now, there's two big studies in that report, both of which were done at uh, test and trace centers. So the people who are turning up at test and trace centers for a PCR test also got tested Um, using this this lateral flow test, or they came back a few days later and were tested. So that allows us to compare how well the test works uh, compared to PCR, but they're going to be people who mainly had symptoms or they should have had symptoms because they'd registered to go to um, uh, to, to the the Track and Trace Center. So those studies are the ones that um, the Department of Health and Social Care have been talking about. Um, And they came up with values of the sensitivity, so the percentage which were te- of Covid cases which were detected, which were um, in the 70% in one study and 58% in the other study. So the difference between those two studies was that in the first study, uh, what's called the Falcon study, the tests were run either by NIHR research nurses or they were sent to Porton Down Laboratory scientists to run the tests. Those gave higher values than the second study, where the tests were run by the, the staff working in the track and trace centre, who aren't healthcare professionals, um, but they are individuals. In this case, it was a Boots track and trace center so perhaps Um, something
0: mechanistic explaining the difference there and this test is done a bit like the pcr swabs as i understand it um swabbing up your nose
3: yeah there's a swabbing was all done i believe by the people so they were self-swabbed but it's the process of actually running the test because it it, it involves several steps of putting the um uh the uh, swab into a, a pot of solution the buffer um Spinning it round a number of times till the viral particles are released off the swab into the buffer, then dropping a certain numbers of drops from that um, of that solution onto a pad on the lateral flow test, waiting the right amount of time, not too short, not too long, to wait for the the, the, the line change to happen, and then trying to work out whether the the, the change on the um, on, on the device is a real line or a faint line or just a smudge which was there anyway mm. so it, 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 it's not a um a, a, a clear yes no answer and it is a process where there are several steps where things could be done less or more rigorously according to so from the portland
0: down studies um do we think this is is good bad indifferent what, what well it depends kind of on at?
3: what where, where when you it depends on what you're going to use it for doesn't it always you can't you know the, the purpose of so if, if we were took the 70 i think it's 76.7 percent is the number which the department kept on um touting which is the results selected from the best study um that means we're missing a quarter of people um at the moment with that test now if it goes down to 58 percent that the confidence interval then Actually goes down to fifty-two percent. So it's like we're missing half. Now mm-hmm. those missing half, the the, the, the participant, Well, we could say that we found half, and that's better than we would have done if we hadn't done the test. That's the argument which is is being made. But we then have to think quite carefully through. Well, what happens to the to the half who are false negatives?
2: Mm.
0: Well, let's um, come to them in a moment. Um, let's stick with the evidence for a second. Is is Porton Down um, it and the work that they've done or, or is there other, other evidence out there which has emerged perhaps since the publication of, of this information by PHE in, in mid-December which we could now take into account to try and resolve some of those differences?
3: So the limitation with Porton Down data is that those, those studies are all in symptomatic people and we're looking at applications of this test in asymptomatic people. Now we know from some other studies of other lateral flow tests, not the Innova test, but others, but we've seen quite big differences. So we really want to look for studies which have been done in asymptomatic people. And there are really two now which have come out um, just at the end of December, which helped us. The first one is the study done in Liverpool in the mass testing of asymptomatic people in Liverpool. And, and the second was one that we did in Birmingham in our student population who were all tested before they went home at Christmas. So in Liverpool, um, there's quite a large study done which showed that the test picked up 40 percent. So even lower than the 58 percent figure from Portland down, they only picked up 40 percent of those who had PCR positive results. Um, And one of the things we always look at in these studies is how well does it pick up people with the higher viral load so with a a PCR we look at the CT value the number of um, cycles of the machine before the positive was detected Um, and those which have um, low CT values which indicate high viral load um, in Liverpool uh, um, a third of them were missed as well so that shows a much lower performance um, than uh, we were hoping for. Now the Birmingham students we we tested 7100 students And we found two positives, only two. It was six days of very hard work for a team of 20 um, to do that before they went home at Christmas. But we retested 10 percent with the PCR and we found another six. So um, the results of that study, the the, the numbers are a lot smaller than than Liverpool. But we actually think we found two and probably would have missed 60 if we retested all of them we and, and the same rate had applied it would have been 60 and that's a sensitivity of three percent which is incredibly low so there are very clear um warning lights here from these studies that actually when you use this test it may miss substantial numbers of people um we have to talk about whether that matters uh, a lot but that it's not going to be as good as the 76.7 percent that the department has kept on telling us about
0: the direct description of the evidence, I suppose, and its limitations and think about the real world because there are schools out there and there are um, GP surgeries and other settings who might be thinking now, do I start using this and what are the potential um, benefits and harms of pursuing this course of action of using the testing? What would happen if we did nothing, actually decided this is this sounds like a total minefield, we should just steer clear of it and stay as we are or maybe doing something else, doing some other kind of testing. Talk us through those options. So if we go all steam ahead, what what are the kind of um, things that you need to consider if you're going to go for this testing? How do you do it well?
3: So if we're doing this testing, we have to think about what we tell people who are positive and what we tell people who are negative. So if somebody gets a positive test result, um, that's finding somebody who would have not been found at that point in time before. So that's what you would think of as being the benefit of this testing. Now the negative tests are, um, the real issue here because these tests miss people, people who have got negative results still have a significant risk of having COVID. So, um, If we think about the Liverpool results, only 40% of those with uh, PCR positives were detected. So the risk of having COVID in those who are negative is actually still more than half of what it would have been if they hadn't been tested.
1: Hmm.
3: Now, my big concern is um, actually a numbers game that those small number of people who are detected who would have been missed otherwise. So, as I said, in Birmingham, we found two students. The benefits of detecting those two students would very quickly be wiped out by one person going and visiting somebody in a care home and taking COVID in. Mm. So the odds aren't in, in, the, in the right direction of this leading to a, a net benefit in terms of reducing COVID unless we make sure that people who are tested negative fully understand that really that doesn't mean that they should behave in any way whatsoever, which is different from before. Um, and if they do, they really risk wiping out the benefits of, of this, this intervention
0: that's very clear john what what if we do nothing is is there an argument just to say i mean the government have obviously bought a lot of these tests and and they perhaps speculated that they were going to be more helpful than this i guess they speculated on the purchase of the vaccine and that kind of gamble paid off It, it perhaps there's there's an argument that says perhaps this is just a little bit uncertain hard to weigh up the benefits and the effects on behavior and maybe we should just sort of write this off to a quiet corner and say we shouldn't go there is that a sort of reasonable way forward?
3: Um, I doubt that would happen frankly I I mean I think (laughs) um, there is so much invested in this in every corner uh, at the moment that I don't think that's true but I think it's worth us reflecting on what research needs to be done to answer these questions because we don't have research on what people are doing with negative results Um, and we have the counting of the of the of the benefits that's what's been happening Um, But we need a lot more research. Some of the Liverpool stuff started to touch on that as to how people actually understand these results. The problem we've got actually is that a lot of the information includes the information given to schools and that to GPs from the department is not telling people anything about the risks or information about how they should interpret negative results. So, I mean, the information sent to schools on the last day of term before Christmas, uh, stated um, that these tests work, they were shown to be as accurate in identifying a case as a PCR test. That's simply not true. And that's going to mislead people into thinking, well, it's going to be safe then. It's going to be, if we've got a negative PCR test, we think about it in the same way. Um, That's slightly been changed in January. It now says these tests are very accurate, which again, is not true. Um, Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of problem that, the Department of Health is not being clear in messaging the concerns about negative test results. The CMO has stated in, in, the, in, in the select committee that there's an issue with this. Uh, the Royal College of Pathologists have stated that mm. the negative test results don't. I wrote an editorial in the BMJ weeks, explained <laughs> very clearly why they don't. Um, but this message needs to be made clear mm. to the people in the public. And it's quite a complicated message to get over. So this this is a big concern is actually people will behave in what they see as an intelligent way because they are not being given the information.
0: So I think the main thing I learned there was that you might find a few bonus cases. um, But if you get a negative test, it really doesn't enable you to really free up your activities very much Um, and it certainly seems like there's the potential for harm if people consciously or unconsciously lower their guard um, and perhaps loosen their social distancing or their PPE. I wonder Duncan as a member of the public what you understand by John's comments or how you think people might act differently?
1: Yeah I mean as John said it's a complicated thing to try and explain this idea of a kind of negative prognostic value um, and I, I haven't seen anywhere in the public um, really describing w- what that is um, and you know even though I'm not a doctor I think I've been exposed to uh, John speaking about these kind of things before and he kind of I get that these are you know if you get a negative test it's it's um it doesn't actually tell you you don't have the virus because of all the reasons he set out, but even then, I think at the back of your head, you still have this idea of a negative test, you know I've got this piece of paper saying um or, or this test result saying you know I don't have uh covid and I can't see how it wouldn't affect your behaviour mm. in some mm. way. You know, just having that there is is reassuring and even if it shouldn't be.
0: So let's zoom out from the individual level to Alison's view of the world, the public health view of the world. And and I said at the beginning there, um, this was something that the government invested um, quite a bit of money in. And, and there's certainly a political or broader context that this story and evidence needs to be put in. Alison, tell us a bit more about that.
2: So as John highlighted, these tests are really only a support for a clinical diagnosis. So they're really not supposed to be used outside of a healthcare setting, and they're supposed to be used by health professionals to help them make a clinical diagnosis. So that's one of the big mistakes that's happened is that testing has been taken out of health services. And it's being used in a very different sort of setting. It's being used to screen healthy people, so really, these mass testing, this use of tests is uh, is really um a screening tool. Mm. But screening is a very complex intervention. it's a program, and it really should have come under the u k National screening committee um because what you're doing is using it for a different purpose, you are screening millions of very healthy people to see whether they have the infection or not. So it's a real puzzle as to why a complex intervention hasn't been properly evaluated and hasn't gone through a national screening committee. After all, we would do that for all other tests when you're running them out into a healthy population.
1: Mm. Mm. Alison, um, you know, with screening committee decisions, I know that they take into account things like false positives and you know, the the downstream effect of, say, having a breast cancer diagnosis and, and um, what that would mean in terms of uh, treatment that's unneeded to a woman. But when it comes to something like an infectious disease in this case, uh, John was really worried there about people's behaviour. Is that something that... Um, the, the screening committee sort of takes account of um, and would look at this in a more holistic way?
2: Yes, absolutely. A screening committee would look at all the costs of a programme because it's not just a test, it's actually a pro, uh, you know cost. What do you do with the test? How do you interpret it? Uh, what does it mean? And then what are the interventions? So you have to look at all of these. And of course, the intervention on a positive test is isolation and then more contact tracing. So what you want to know is, is that intervention more effective, the isolation and cost um, and uh, isolation, than if you were simply capturing all the symptomatic people and asking them to isolate and do the contact tracing? What are the additional benefits over the traditional, over over what we should be doing and what we are not doing properly now? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the screening committee would take into account all the different kinds of harms. And many of the harms don't actually arise until you actually start to study them. So you don't know what the harms are. It's not just a false negative test or a false positive test, but you could have unnecessary isolation or you may not be isolating people. You may have psychological harms and, as you say, behavioral harms with people being convinced either they're positive or negative and stigma. So there are all sorts of harms that you don't know about unless you study them and properly evaluate them, which is why the UK National Screening Committee has been so important uh, in evaluating all sorts of tests.
0: That's really helpful context, Alison. Um, And although the National Screening Committee hasn't looked at this, the government um, does tell us frequently that it's guided by the science or the evidence. um, And they do have advisory groups and you have some experience um, working with this independent advisory group. Can you tell us a little bit about Ice Age, what what that is and, and, and what it's been doing?
2: Um, well, Independent SAGE was really set up to uh, bring about more transparency and accountability. Because if you remember at that time, uh, SAGE had not published its membership, it hadn't published its evidence or its minutes. So iSAGE did an enormous amount in the early days to ensure much greater transparency. It's also been trying to communicate much more what the government data tell us, which is what they do every week and actually taking occasional reports to look at issues such as schools, school closures. But of course, it doesn't have the wealth of expertise that SAGE has. So it's been very useful in uh, trying to bring government to account. Mm. Um, But I think we mustn't lose sight of the bigger political picture that's going on with mass testing. Uh, and I want to put this into context, if I may. Mm, do. Yeah, if you remember in August and September, there, there were leaked um, Operation Moonshot papers, which were proposing spending £100 billion on mass testing. Now, £100 billion would co- would build you 400 brand new hospitals and equip them. That's how, how much money the government's planning. It's already spent one billion pounds on natural flow tests and four billion on other sorts of tests as well, uh, and it doesn't want to leave these millions and millions of tests, which, as John has said, the lateral flow tests are really not fit for purpose. It doesn't want to leave them on the shelf, so it has to find a good reason, which is why it's so partly why it's so keen on mass testing programs. Use, it has to use them; it wants to use them, so it's rolling it out in schools, in universities, in the community, without any proper evaluations having been done. And the slender evaluations that we're seeing shows that these tests are not fit for purpose. So this is very worrying indeed. Mm. It's a great concern that these tests are being rolled out without formal evaluation as part of this £100 billion Operation Moonshot programme.
1: The government's in a hard position having bought all these tests. You know, they must be under an enormous amount of political pressure. Um, You know, imagine they didn't use it and the Daily Mail headline saying, uh, you know, there are a million whatever tests just sitting in a warehouse not being used um so it's not just about educating government it's about educating kind of
2: yeah
0: and i brought that up in my interview with john i i think one of the um options i said was you know we speculated on buying the vaccines and we didn't know that they were going to work um and we have some evidence or sufficient evidence um to say they're worth a go and we should get on with them so couldn't you, by the same logic, justify the fact that it may have been that this testing turned out to be great um, and then and then everyone would be very grateful. But should we not also, by the same token, be willing to write off things that we that don't work? I guess the problem here is that we don't actually know that it doesn't work. We just bought the stuff, sort of speculated on it and haven't done the work to work out whether it works or not.
2: So that's a good point. And we should leave them on the shelf if they don't work, even if we spent billions. And there oh, yeah, should be an inquiry yes. into why we spent the billions. Because remember, it's not just the cost of the tests, but the government is paying £14 per test to universities and local authorities. So we're talking about billions more being spent on the rollout of useless tests that are not fit for purpose. So it would be better to just leave them on the shelf and have a public inquiry into why those tests were bought and procured outside of normal procurement rules as well.
1: It seems to be the sense out there that testing is the intervention that's going to to stop coronavirus. And that's where all the, the focus has been. But actually, the intervention is isolation. It's stopping people you know, the testing just allows the intervention to be put in in the right places. And and just the way they've been spending money seems to have that totally on its head.
2: You're absolutely correct, Duncan. Um, A test is a test, but it's what is the intervention that follows. And the only intervention that can follow is isolation and contact tracing from that not going to work. And that means that you have to give people financial support And adequate housing, because we know most transmission is occurring within households, especially at the moment, so you have to be giving people adequate housing and hotel accommodation if they need it, and ensuring that people actually do isolate and are supported to do so. And that is what is not happening, and it has been another failure of the contact tracing. So if we just got the basics right, we wouldn't be in this mess now.
0: So to continue with our theme of transmission, point of care testing is one way that may ultimately interrupt transmission, um, particularly amongst asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic people. And Alison, before Christmas, I spotted you writing on the pages of the BMJ um, about um, what we know and don't know around asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission. And I think it's fair to say really with an emphasis on describing and trying to make clearer what we know and also what what we don't know. Um, so can you tell us, from your understanding, um, when, when you wrote that piece, how many people really are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic and how
2: infectious are they? So in the early days, it was thought that up to 80% of people were asymptomatic. But those studies were wrong because they hadn't done the follow-up Of people on the day of the test to see whether they had symptoms beforehand or symptoms afterwards. So the most recent systematic reviews are putting it around 17% of people. Now that's in stark contrast to the figures that Matt Hancock and Public Health England and NHS executive are putting out, which is um, a third of people, 33%. It's much, much lower. So the number of people who are truly asymptomatic is much lower because it's been discovered that 49% up to half of people who are originally um, thought to be asymptomatic actually go on to develop symptoms.
0: So they were pre-symptomatic. So they were pre-symptomatic
2: or in the early clinical stages. Yeah. So um, that's a really important finding. Um, The second issue is how infectious are asymptomatic people and are they key drivers of transmission? Because that's clearly the reasoning behind Matt Hancock wanting to roll out mass testing. Their argument is a third of people are asymptomatic, so therefore they're spreading the virus and they're major drivers of transmission. So for that, we have to rely on really good studies of contact tracing, and what we call secondary attack rates.
1: What do you mean by a secondary attack rate, Alison?
2: Oh, that's transmission rates, infection rates, transmission rates. You're looking to see the, infec- the transmission of the virus from the index case to households or within schools or wh- wherever, you know, wherever the setting is, whatever setting you choose to look at. Now, it's really important to note that up to... Um, of people don't actually, cases don't actually infect anyone. So transmission is really generated by a relatively few number of cases. Um, So 80% of new infections come from only one case, and 70% of people aren't transmitting at all. So that's important to remember. And you're much more likely to transmit if you're symptomatic, and you've got a lot of virus you're um, you're transmitting, and in certain conditions. So we know that people who are more likely to infect or be infected, household transmission, crowded spaces, poor housing, occupation, and social class, lower social class, so deprivation. These are all um, major factors that contribute to transmission. So the issue with asymptomatic transmission is that when you look at the systematic reviews, and there are now very good living systematic reviews, these show um, that asymptomatic people who are asymptomatic are 3 to 25 times less likely to be transmitting than symptomatic people with symptoms. And that's based on secondary attack rates. Um, so... Uh, People who are asymptomatic are not key drivers of transmission, and neither are asymptomatic children. So that then begs the question, why Why? Why is the government rolling out mass testing with inappropriate tests? The much better solution from a public health perspective would be to focus on finding symptomatic people So, and this means we need to put testing back into health services and marry the symptoms with the tests. And then we ask people who are symptomatic to isolate along with their contacts. And that means supporting them. Because what we do know is in the UK, something like only 20% of people actually manage to self-isolate. And that includes their contacts. Um, And what we do know also is that people who are most at risk of being infected are also most at risk of not being able to isolate. And this is because of their financial and their housing circumstances. So instead of spending a 100 billion and billions on wasting people's time on mass testing in schools and universities and community settings, it would be much better to spend that money on contact tracing effectively and isolating people and supporting people financially and with housing or with hotels if their housing isn't appropriate to actually isolate. Um, and that's really the key public health message. The second message is that it's, we do not know if we did this properly, it is very likely we would end up mopping up most of the people who are at risk of transmitting, i.e. the early symptomatics or even the asymptomatics. If you are doing your backward contact tracing well, you will probably detect most of them, which would then again mean that your mass testing has very little benefit at all because you should be mopping up most of those. So there are really big questions as to the rationale uh, of mass testing, though it has a sort of political um, gut feeling that this must be a good thing.
0: That's really helpful, Alison. And do you think it there's kind of broad agreement amidst the scientific community that that's the case? Do you think it's just a, a political driver that's really spurring this forwards now?
2: Yes, this is pure politics and huge commercial conflicts uh, that are going on here. The Robert Koch Institute in Germany and SAGE have both given advice that the focus should be on finding symptomatic people, on on making sure your testing resources are properly targeted to those people and to isolating and doing contact tracing. Hmm. Now, if we're going to use tests and healthcare workers um or in in residential care settings they need to be very carefully evaluated as part of a screening program so if you're going to do it on targeted groups you need to know that that evaluation is effective and that it's working and that it is not doing more harm mm-hmm. because already we know of people who have symptoms um their agency workers working in nursing homes or in health services they take their test. The test is negative. The lateral flow, so they go into work, even though they've got symptoms, rather than staying at home. And then they be, they subsequently convert to being positive. So this is this is one of the real harms that you can be doing with mass testing using useless tests. So focus on the symptoms. Get it back into the clinical setting, uh, and do your testing properly, and get your public health working with uh, isolation and contact tracing and financial support and good housing. And it's you what Japan on. and South Korea did. Mm.
0: You touched on um, schools in there, Alison, and um, obviously one of the the things within the UK that changed um, just at the beginning of the year and was being hotly debated was around um, transmission, um, perhaps asymptomatically or minimally symptomatically amongst um, school children. What do we know about that?
2: So um, one of the people who's been doing a lot of work is Alistair Munro and also uh, Professor Russell Viner. Um, So they would be really good people to talk to about schools and transmission. And we've also got this big BMJ um, known unknowns coming up on children in schools. But what we do know about children is they're not key drivers of the epidemic. And nor are ch- and children who are asymptomatic are even less likely to transmit than adults who are asymptomatic. So that's again looking at secondary attack rates. Mm. Um, it's much more likely that you'll get adult to child transmission than child to adult transmission. Um, and it- I know the argument is that uh, children will be more likely to be asymptomatic, but it's not more likely that they're going to be more infectious or transmitting. And it's one of the important myths that we get over that children are not major drivers of the epidemic and neither are asymptomatic children. And of course, we have to distinguish between young children and then teenagers and older children. But I would really recommend um, Alistair Munro uh, to talk about this and also Miguel Chevik. There's been some very nice work done on this.
0: that's about all we've got time for this week if you've enjoyed listening to this episode please subscribe like us and rate us Um, it it helps us if you've got any feedback requests for guests or questions that you want to get answered please send them in to duncan or i either via email you can find us on bmj.com's list of editors um, or via twitter We'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Talk Evidence. Um, In the meantime, it's goodbye from me.
2: Goodbye and thank you, Helen and Duncan.
1: And it's goodbye from me. Take care out there.